episode seven of If These Walls, Tut's Tomb, is best paired with the song Imhotep, or The Pharaoh's Curse by Iced Earth. Top that with a cocktail called the Kerezi, which is just muddled cherries in equal parts white wine, red wine, and whiskey. And I'm sure you can handle it. Knock, knock. Who dare? Why did everyone gather in fucking huge groups on the 4th of July? What was going on in Columbus? Can you hear my air conditioner in the background? No. Thank God I was going to die if I had to turn it off. I don't but think what I was, can. What was going on in Columbus, though? There's multiple bars in the short north that got shut down over the weekend and then didn't shut down and then made statements but took them back. I'm going to call them out by name because they're because of their unprofessionalism. Yeah, it's Standard Hall, who was the first bar to reopen in the short north and got cited like 20 times the first weekend that bars were allowed to reopen in May. And they closed. They threw a hissy fit and closed. And they were like, well, fine, then we're not coming back. And then they reopened and they were like, okay, we made our social distancing better. Fuck. And this is the exactly the attitude I assume they take. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they got, but they were, they've been packed ever since then. Very uh, dangerously packed. And then over the weekend, they posted that one of their employees who had worked at two other restaurants in the area as well, uh, was tested positive for COVID. So they were closing all their locations effective immediately, those three locations. And then the next day they deleted all of that from social media because they don't know that screenshots exist apparently. And then they're reopening this week without getting test results from the employees that they asked to get tested. And I had also heard that that same employee who magically worked in two locations in the same night correct was that went to one yeah which happens and when you're a bar back or a bartender that i mean that that happens in the service industry but there was also apparently footage that at the end of the night he went to a completely unrelated bar callahan's and was getting bottle service there and it's there's footage of it so this same employee went to two different bars worked there served people and then went to a third location unrelated and i believe callahan's is responding accordingly i'm not sure but i think they are i don't know what's better to think that people are so extremely selfish or that people are so extremely dumb and don't understand what's happening they're it's they're both terrible options here but both are available in tandem with each other yes they are it's just it's so frustrating um it seems like the U.S. response now is just, well, we've got to live with it. Oh, shucks. And uh, yeah, I guess, but I, there's no, there's no other option. Like that is now the, that's the option. We have to live with it. The best advice you can give to anyone in a toxic relationship is, you know what? Stick it out. It's gonna get. Just live with it. That is the moral of every Lifetime movie I ever watched growing up. Yes. And I think we're in a Lifetime movie esque relationship. We are the Meredith Baxter Bernie of the story of the American love story and we are not being treated well. No. Oh, hey, Lainey. Hey, Audrey. How was your 4th of July? Safe, I assume. It was good, yeah. We went to a remote location and camped in a camper, not in a tent. Don't, I'm not getting in a tent, sorry. I don't mind it. I just don't prefer it. 
Well, and it's not, you're more of a chill person and that's pretty intense. <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm so happy I got that in. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh-huh. I sent you up for that. Yeah, we went to, uh, we got out of town and went to a lake and stayed in a camper and went out on a boat and saw no other humans. It was great. Glorious. I revisited some um, 4th of July classics and uh, picked them apart for how I felt they accurately represented history. I watched 1776, the original Howard De Silva, uh, Ken Howard, William Daniels, AKA Mr. Feeney. It, side note, for everything that, that needs to be um, potentially addressed in that musical, it has a fantastic book and it is in my top five maybe my favorite musical wow <laughs> it really is it really is i think it's just because i s- strongly identified with the sense of humor that howard de silva put into ben franklin from a very young age i was a very ornery kid that like ben franklin was my comedy idol but that's what that was fun howard de silva fact uh blacklisted for being a communist by mccarthy really happy america everybody so I watched that and it was pretty much fine, except for the fact that it's like, you know, very white, great costumes. Uh, and then I watched Mel Gibson's The Patriot. Oh. And it had one of my, one of the most frustrating tropes that I think you see in period pieces is the concept of the joyful slave that is so happy Dude. to be serving the family. Or they throw in a quick line of it's like, no, 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 we're not slaves. We're working this land because we like this person is so, literally what someone says. So there's a great, podcast series called you must remember this Uh, i believe that's what it's called it's hosted by karina longworth her voice takes a while to get used to um but each each season she does she speaks very she over pronounces and speaks very slowly so i'm gonna feel like she's talking down to me a little bit (laughs) but you do get used to it i don't know i should it's my voice is no is nothing spectacular so i shouldn't talk anyway she does it's all uh hollywood history and i just listened to her she did a whole like six six episodes but they're beefy they're like one and a half to two hours on the song of the south Mm. which is the disney movie you will not find on disney plus zippity doodah zippity doodah and it's it's that's uh yeah that's that's the whole concept of the whole movie is the joyful slave that's just happy to be working and uh, she she it does it's a real deep dive into disney and blacklisting people in hollywood at that time and yeah it's a great if you are looking for like a i'm cleaning the house i need a whole podcast series to listen to highly recommend it i think i believe it is their fifth season is the one i'm talking about so that's a good one but you know what you can find on Disney Plus, speaking of history and 4th of July? Die Hard. Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's so I had a lot of emotional experiences this weekend watching Hamilton. Uh, when I first saw Hamilton, or when I first got into Hamilton, it was in the context of the 2016 election. And uh, just listening to uh, Chris Jackson sing one last time over and over on Obama's last day in office and just crying my eyes out. So that was the context in which I started to love Hamilton. And then watching it in the context now of, well, a couple of things. 
Black Lives Matter movement um, certainly adds some weight to it, as does the fact that it is now a temporarily lost art form, live theater. And you can critique Hamilton all you want. I, I was getting mad because I'm like, this is the one one great thing that's like come out that's kind of uniting at least a part of us. Can't we just have it and love it? And then people start really critiquing it, which is a shame. But even if you have critiques of it, which is fine, that's your opinion. You cannot deny the fact that every element of theater comes together so perfectly in that show. It is a wonder. And I just everything everything just pulls together so beautifully and and it's extremely emotional especially if you have not partook in in theater lately because theater's closed because people are assholes i have so many things that i want to double back to one it's partake not partook in i know it is my mother's english teacher audrey well, you, you shamed her just then. And uh, the other thing is going way, way, way back to um, listening to Chris Jackson singing one last time on Obama's last day. Do you remember when Obama sang, let's stay together? Yes. So he's he can hit some notes. How great would it be if he recorded one last time? I can't. I, my heart would crack into 3,000 pieces. I couldn't do it. I couldn't listen to it. I think he'd sound good. I think I, he'd sound good. I think he'd it. sound too good too. All right, I just wanted to put that out there. And um, that leads me to, oh, I do know what I was going to say next. The, this is another thing, just in case you didn't know, Hamilton's really good um, as, as a piece of theater because the, the choreography, the being most of the scenery, everything's created with bodies. And then also it's this incredibly unique show where even though there aren't explicitly queer characters, the entirety of the chorus is dressed alike uniformly and is used to create again movement creating the scenery everyone's strong everyone literally lifts things they're such a acrobatic cast but there is no use for gender per se um in in that chorus it truly doesn't matter what people look like i'm not seeing a production where people have different abilities i'm curious to see what not to my knowledge. Uh, let me know if there is a production where you have a disabled person um, in the yeah. course. That'd be phenomenal. Um, I think there's room for it. What's up, Lin-Manuel? Make that happen. I was going to mention one thing. Can I mention one thing that I forgot about until this moment? Well, everyone's going to think I'm a bitch if I don't let you now. So yeah. Okay. So when I was in high school, we had a huge drama program, but for some reason, drama classes weren't allowed to be taught on the high school curriculum. So like we couldn't, there were no acting classes, whatever. I feel so, like that's part of like English or speech and debate. How, it, it could be. So we, but we did have a great um, history teacher. She taught history and I think she taught like some social studies classes. And she was also the woman who directed our musicals. So how we got around this was it was, she taught a class called like history as portrayed in musicals or I can't, I don't remember exactly what it was. It wasn't theater history, but literally then that's all we did was like, listen to 1776 and Titanic and any musical that had any type of historical context whatsoever. And that's how we got away with having a singing and dancing and acting class. That was also history. That has informed much of my life. I just realized. 
it's always shout out to the social studies teachers out there. It's always the social studies teacher. Our our uh, drama program was split between social studies teacher and then uh, pastor. Oh, nice. Pastor Mac was fantastic. <laughs> pastor Mac was fantastic and could do an excellent Scottish accent. Um, in case that was a requirement for being a pastor. Well, pastors anyway. are kind of the ultimate performers. They're great at it. They, be they better be good at it. You yeah. gotta hold hold attention for at least 15 to 20. Okay, sorry about my tangent. Go ahead. That's okay. <laughs> Speaking of history, this is the history podcast, y'all. And uh, we've been taking efforts lately to make sure that we're covering topics that either neither of us knew about, um, didn't know the full extent of, or felt that were overlooked um, in our early childhood education. I, in the spirit of going back and, and re-watching <laughs> films that I used to love and think depicted early American history accurately, um, I wanted to revisit something that I considered myself an expert in, in fifth grade. I am not kidding. I really thought I was an expert in this. Um, I found a book in the library in second grade on mummies and mummification, and I became obsessed with that process. Also sharks. We'll get to that later. <laughs> I'm going to find a time to do a shark episode. <laughs> but I was really into mummies and that kind of evolved into this fascination with ancient Egypt that culminated in the 1999 release of the mummy starring Brendan Fraser. Introduction to Rachel Weiss. That movie is fantastic. The movie holds up. It slaps guys i just rewatched it and the one thing that i thought was going to be problematic with it because i misremembered something there's a character um i knew i should have written down his name there's a there is a well-known character actor it's henry something i'm so sorry bud i'll look you up later we'll put it in the comments um <laughs> um he plays a character called benny who is pseudo comic relief slash the villain's assistant i had thought for the longest time that um that character was supposed to be Egyptian and this actor is white. Turns out he's Hungarian and it's explicitly said that in the canon and he speaks Hungarian occasionally. Benny? The actor you're looking for is Kevin J. O'Connor, who so played not Benny. Henry. Not Henry. Kevin J. Like O'Connor played Benry, G Benry. <laughs> Benny Gabor. Yes, who was Hungarian. So he is not in fact in brown face. And that was the thing I was scared about going back to watch the movie as I thought that they had done that. They didn't do that. Hallelujah. Can we talk about my obsession when that movie came out with um, the actor Oded Fair, who plays Art at Bay, who is a gloriously beautiful man. Oh my God. That's... I was so in love with him and his character. He's an Israeli actor. He is a beautiful. Top five acceptable face tattoos. Yes. On that... And then he comes back for the other, and here's oh. the thing, but he comes back for, for the other parts of the series. However, I don't want to say all that his, that his acting is bad. It's just that all of the writing in the sequels is terrible. Oh. I do it's love the mummy too, though. I do. I do. Bad. I, I don't care. I don't care. I love it. it. First appearance of the rock. I love it. It was, it was, it was the rock's introduction to acting. It was also the introduction of Rachel Weisz's natural eyebrows. Jumping away from the first film where she had historically accurate 1920s penciled on eyebrows, and then she got a little famous. Then you know what she got when she got famous? Her own eyebrows and pants and cardigans from Ann Taylor Loft. They completely changed her costuming. I get she's an explorer, but it 
it killed it for me because that's what I loved about the original The Mummy is like it did a pretty good job of being stylistically in the year it was set, and the sequel just went to crap. I do like the character choices for her for her in the sequel though. The, I I love the first one. She's a little bit damsel in distress in it. She had she, up until that point only ever been a librarian. And then you throw her and she's running from mummies. You're going to be a, there's a learning curve. I will give you the CGI and the mummy returns is pure crap. So bad. Oh, it's her. Well, the rock when he is the scorpion king is very, very bad. Okay. But to be fair, that was like 2000, 2001. I know. They were still doing the, you're watching Disney Channel and the wand went by and the kids drew out the Mickey Mouse ears and that was like a really slow sparkle thing. I think Xenon Girl the 21st Century came out. That's when this was in history. So tangent, when you're talking about the thing that you were an expert at as a child, Mm -hmm. um, I was a paleontologist as a child. Um, I was an expert in everything dinosaur. And I was obsessed with Jurassic Park, which I just saw this past week outside on a screen. And those special effects hold up. Well, because they're actual puppets. Also, I know. paleontology, like, I get it. Because weren't, weren't the dinosaurs, like, alive when you were growing up? That joke is not even funny because it's so ridiculous. So's your face. Great. Thank you. All right. Hey, everybody. <laughs> This is If These Walls. I'm Audrey. That's Lainey. She's drinking out of a can right now, so I'm going to introduce her for her. <laughs> um, this, again, is If These Wall, the Walls, the podcast where we talk about history. Uh, we pick a location, introduce an address, famous or infamous throughout history, and explain to you what happened inside and around those walls and why you should care. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now we have a, a special little treat for you today. As we said, we are going back to ancient Egypt, but I also want to give you some context for why we're also focused on mummies and curses and pyramids in Egypt and whatnot. So without further ado, we are taking a trip to KV62 in the Valley of the Kings, Egypt, the tomb of Tutankhamun. So first, I want to introduce to everyone to a concept called Egyptomania. This is a real term. I didn't just make it up, even though it sounds like something I would. <laughs> Egyptomania was the renewed interest of Europeans in ancient Egypt during the 19th century, and in particular, the extensive scientific study of ancient Egyptian remains and culture. So in the late 1700s, European adventurers started journeying up the Nile en masse. Uh, And they were absolutely smitten by all the temples and the Nile Delta and the hippos and the weather and the linen pants and all the fun stuff that made Egypt the hot spring break destination that it was. So the only thing that didn't gel with their vocation, with their vacay goals were the locals. So this love for all material things, Egypt, and this distaste for actual Egyptians was pretty well documented, uh, both in expedition annals, I love the word annals, and in personal diaries of the Europeans that were there, both as tourists and explorers. Perhaps in my research, the most handkerchief wave worthy name calling I found was from a French naturalist named Charles Sonini Monancourt, in which he called the locals, these rascally fellas, (laughs) 
and he called it a truly detestable place, but he left with a butt ton of antiquities that he found there. So he's like, I love this shiny stuff that you have, but you rascally fella. Isn't that just, that's just, that's classic, uh, I don't know the right term for it, but that's where we are now too. Classic racism, loving it's something loving that, the loving the thing, loving the culture, but hating the people. Absolutely. It's it's this this pick and choose of I deem something you created of worth. So I'm going to f- either work at it, just work it into my modern life, or find a way to say that it's like, well, this is important to my history and my people, and this is what I think this is particularly an issue with Egypt, and I'm about to get into this. Okay. Um, is yeah, people appropriating the culture and then anyone who actually lives and creates that culture it's just like well i don't like this about you so no yeah so napoleon returned home after his little invasion and occupation of egypt from 1798 to 1801 and brought with him gold and baubles and tales of all the splendor of what was formerly ancient thebes thebes i realize i didn't say that clearly thebes european power started clamoring for pharaonic is the how you say it pharaonic antiquities um and collections of their own and it became a question of prestige and it was called an obelisk race to unearth the buried treasures you find the little like peak at the top of just like scrooge mcduck did uh, where you find the top of the pyramid and then you get all the sand away and it's like oh my gosh there's a whole pyramid underneath ducktails um so so the people that lived among the tombs were seen as, quote, unfair and uncultured competition. <laughs> so this area um, is op- opposite modern-day Luxor. It's on the west side of the Nile in an area known as Korna. It's, some, uh, it's spelled Q-U-R-N-A, sometimes spelled K-U-R-N-A. That's more of a Western spelling. So as the appetite for Egypt's treasures grew abroad, Kurna's infrastructure expanded with it until the local population, uh, who are called Kurnawis, Kurnawis, I, I so apologize. It's hard for me to put my mouth around, but I need to work at it. That's what she said. Ah, shut up. <laughs> Kurnawis were a super chill folk. They had their linen pants and their hippos in their own backyard. And they were perfectly content to just live in the tombs that dotted the landscape. Um, because these existing structures were prized for their cool temperatures during the summers because ancient Egyptians knew what was up. So when the French and British began making their regular expeditions to the area, some villagers began to mimic the foreign archeologists who were beginning to build houses on the edge of the Nile floodplain through the late 1800s. So their numbers ballooned and as other locals started to um, loot, I don't wanna call it looting, digging, exploring, being an archaeologist, whatever, taking things from the ground. Uh, So in about a 50-year period between the locals supplying European demand and the Western archaeologists excavating like a kid in the dollar store toy section, all of the vast majority of the ancient Theban Valley was picked clean. Like there's a quote from a British tourist visiting in 1846 and she said, there's scarcely an entire mummy to be obtained for love or money at Thebes. Her name is Isabella Romer, and I want to say, Isabella, get another hobby. I'm sorry no one saved a mummy for you. Maybe your mummy didn't pay you enough attention. You need to go find another mummies. Oh, shit. 
come on, Isabella, fill in voids in your life with other people's culture. It's a body. <laughs> so this shift in the culture of the local Kronaris was just a matter of supply and demand. Foreigners wanted as many antiquities as they could find. And people started to live, people who lived in the mountains started to work for them. Um, and that's just how it was. And this hypocritical dislike for the local population was fed by the sense of competition. So there was a distrust with the Europeans um, who considered locals to be sneaky, to be swindlers and what have you. Um, and sadly, this was perpetuated by a very small number of individuals. For instance, in 1871, Kerner resident Ahmed Abdul Rasul hit pay dirt in the bluffs overlooking the Temple of Hatshepsut uh, when they found an what is estimated to have been a cluster of multiple upper-class individual tombs. So over the next few years, Ahmed and his brother just discreetly bartered away the treasures that they found, including dozens of mummies um, and artifacts whenever they needed the mummy. And they killed a donkey and dumped its carcass down the tomb entrance and periodically replaced it in order to give other potential mummy snatchers the impression that the find was cursed. So there's just always a dead donkey in front of there, no matter when you go. So that's, I would think something's up with that place. I wouldn't go in. If there's always a fresh dead donkey. At this point, and perhaps you will get to this. So at this point in what, like mid 18, mid to late 1800s. Yeah. Did stories of curses from looting these artifacts start to pop up? They were starting to begin, and I'll get to this a little bit more in depth later. Curses were something that was part of Egyptian culture, but it wasn't necessarily something that was external warning off robbers and looters. It was something that was more of a mandate. It was usually um, geared towards religious figures, telling them it's basically do your job, make sure like bury this Pharaoh right, don't fuck it up, and don't fuck it up. Category is wrapped excellence. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's where it came from. There there are texts supporting it, but as far as uh, sites themselves being cursed, that's something that really kind of organically came from foreign sources. And locals, as in the case with this 1871 re renewable recyclable dead donkey is something that the locals took advantage of because at that point it's like okay well if you believe this anyway then this is a fairly accessible way to keep you out of my tomb and i have a never-ending supply of ribs so there you go so instances like this and individuals like those two brothers have gone a long way toward coloring the global and specifically western view of the kernari people and that bias continues into today beyond the nile delta the wave of Egyptomania affected every field of Western culture, most notably literature, architecture, film, politics, and religion. So everything, uh, except chemistry. Uh, so American literature, visual art, and architecture absorbed what was becoming general knowledge about ancient Egyptian culture. The mummy, for example, uh, represented the fascination of the Americans with the living dead and reanimation. So this fascination went so far that mummy unwrapping parties were organized in the 1800s. Is this, I couldn't find enough. How far are we unwrapping? Are they real mummies? 
No, no, like you, your friend, Beauregard, you're dressed like a mummy, dear. And then you unwrap at the party. I don't know what region I decided they were from. Did you, when you get to this mummy unwrapping party, do you have to put your keys in a bowl? Because it sounds like it has the, it has the potential to turn a little erotic. I think so. Somebody, you drop your little signet ring in a bowl, see who you're going to stamp that night. Oh, I know what I'm doing when we can have parties again. Signet rings? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So parties like that and this fascination just pushed the hysteria of Americans with Egyptian myths further and further. They ate that shit up. There was the figure of Cleopatra, hieroglyphic writing and deciphering, and the concept of the pyramid as a maze and a tomb were popular in literary works. And it flew off the shelves. Anything that made reference to anything Egypt um, so we got some words with a mummy by Edgar Allan Poe, Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse by Louisa May Alcott, sequel to Little Women, Joe's Big Adventure. Didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. Wow. It's not. Don't look that up. Um, and The Marble Fawn by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I'm not familiar with that. Are you familiar with that? No. Old Nate did no. the, did the last of the Mohicans? I was not. No. All right. Put it on the reading list. So the impact of ancient Egyptian culture in architecture is called the Egyptian revival. And it's an important expression of neoclassicism in the United States. Well-known Egyptian images, forms, and symbols were integrated into contemporary style. And this influence can best be seen in the architecture of cemeteries and prisons. That's Egyptomania, y'all. So... (laughs) Let's get a little bit into Egyptology, which is the actual study of Egyptian heritage and racial identity, especially as it was argued in the United States in the 1800s. So now on Egyptology and racial identity. In the 1800s, biological studies were a fast rising yet controversial field. Craniology, which is defined as the study of the human cranium, bet you couldn't figure that out based on the words alone, claimed to be able to determine an individual's intelligence and even their character. So with all these Egyptian mummies running around, well, being passed around, maybe running, I don't know what happened at the parties, provided a whole new crop of well-preserved ancient skulls to study. So craniology was especially important at this particular juncture with regard to ethnic tracing, specifically with debates around the justification of slavery, inquiring minds wanted to know, were the pharaohs white or black? I'm doing, this is not reading to the people that are listening. I'm doing a lot of nodding because I find this so fascinating. And you should too. <laughs> I am in, in rapt attention. Get it? Do you get it? <laughs> you, did you just interject only so you could say that stupid pun? A little bit. Oh, babe. Your clavicle does look great today. Okay. Thank you. I want to jump in here real quick with my own scientific opinion because I am what a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) That degree's useless. Just pick a new one. Um, I can play a scientist. So even if the Egyptians were not black, they still weren't white, gang. It's melanin. There's a desert. And also every hieroglyphic. So I'm sorry to burst anyone's bubble 
particularly Cecil B. DeMille, but Elizabeth Taylor was not the historically accurate choice for Cleopatra. Yeah. While we're on this topic, let's just drop in there that there are no white people in the Bible. There are no white people in the Bible. There are no white people in the Bible. Fact. I'm going to think of verses to that way. <laughs> uh, and then pitch it to VeggieTales. It's, it's a... <laughs> It's solid. Solid. Thank you. Um, so can I go on? Yes, okay. please. <laughs> so speaking of problematic historical figures, because we totally were. Samuel George Morton. Get to know the name, get it under your skin, get ready to get kind of mad about it. So Samuel George Morton, for those who don't know, like me and most people, was the founder of the American School of Ethnology in the midst of this Egyptian influx. Morton put forward the theory of polygenesis, claiming that there was not one, but several human races who are in a hierarchical order with whites at the top and blacks at the bottom end of the scale. So spoiler alert, science today has completely disproved anything that Morton ever wrote about this. Um, Morton's American school was to a large degree responsible for the development of the current professional status of the sciences and the renunciation of Puritan ideas of monogenesis and the Christian clerical worldview. So there's definitely a lot of monuments to and schools named after this over-the-top racist who also advanced the legitimacy of the sciences. Our history is complicated, guys and its figures are crunchy. So, to this day, scientists, historians, and anatomists argue whether Egyptians were white, black, or a mixture of both. Um, the argument draws on aspects such as wall paintings or the physique of mummies. Egypt occupies a special location in between historical and geographic regions. So, according to Richard White, Egypt is not easily placed within Africa or Asia, or within the East or the West. I do want to say, however, I know this guy's a scientist and I'm not, or a geographist and I'm not, but Egypt is on Africa. That's it, correct. This continent, Africa. Yes. Thank you. Africa. Okay. So Egypt. <laughs> you, you realize that like we created the continents though, like humans did. It's so much division within the Middle East and territories around there are because Western civilization came down put down lines and said, this is this place, this is Palestine, this is Israel. And they said, that's not how our tribes work. And the white people said, I don't care. I like maps. And they just wrote lines anyway. So all of this kind of arguing about territories, I, I, I had to, doesn't sit with me, doesn't sit with me like the low mean I ate last night doesn't sit with me. Here's my scientific input. And by scientific, I mean cartographic. You guys know those lines don't exist in real life, right? That's it. That's all I had to say. But can't you visit the lines where all the things come? No, there's no lines. How do I know when I'm in Ohio? Your Waze tells you, welcome to Ohio. That's true. Thanks, Waze. Okay. So, in a lot of Western studies, Egypt is not easily placed within Africa or Asia or within the East or West. So, there's a lot of Egypt being defined as everybody's past with the figure of Egypt being an important point of reference in the development of national identity in the Western world. Um, though these processes of identity formation are complex and involve many factors. Racial identity, 
is central to these processes, particularly in the United States, uh, where the emerging sense of distinct national identity and the increasing conflict over slavery were inseparably linked in the first half of the 19th century. So the racial identity of Egyptian pharaohs was used especially by 19th century scientists, such as uh, this Samuel George Morton Feller and his contemporaries to confirm the American racial hierarchy. This hierarchy served proponents of slavery to justify the inhumane treatment of slaves and the denial of civil rights for anyone but white Americans. So Morton's book, Types of Mankind in 1854, was when it was released, um, is the culmination of American school racial thinking and it contains a major chapter on the racial characteristics of ancient Egyptians, starting a controversy that still, for some reason, rages today. For example, um, these two dudes whose names I can't pronounce, uh, Vincent Sarek and Frank Mealy, Mealy, he's a wiener, so I don't really care. Um, there's a book that they wrote in 2004 called The Reality of Human Differences. And it was a recent attempt to add academic credibility to the popular but scientifically discredited notion that race constitutes an essential rather than a culturally constructed human difference. And that book uses Egypt in a similar way, based on Morton's arguments. 2004, this was written. Whatever justifies your white supremacy, dicks. I just want to be comfortable, man. So on the flippity flip. David Walker, James McKeon Smith, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, who has made an appearance in the last three episodes. Yeah, he's around a lot. Yeah, we should actually do an episode diving into the Philadelphia Negro and that whole study at yes. some point. Anyway, <laughs> so these badasses and some other Afrocentrist thinkers in the 19th century insisted that Egyptians were Black Africans, making it possible to provide an ancient and noble lineage that countered the degrading images proliferated by racist science and pro-slavery rhetoric. See, African Americans had used the biblical Exodus narrative to encode their right and desire for freedom. You've heard go down Moses, you've heard wade in the water and whatnot. Um, so David Walker's appeal in 1829 asserted that the pharaohs were black as well, which created some dissonance um, doo -boo -boo, dissonance with his interpretation, with this interpretation of the Exodus narrative. So James McKeon Smith and Frederick Douglass countered white ethnography directly. And when Morton dropped Types of Mankind in 1854, Douglass did an immediate clapback with claims of the ethno eth Negro ethnologically considered 1854. Later that year, he wrote a whole book that year and said, <laughs> the ethnolo ethno, whew, why can't I say that word, Elena? Uh, you should take a breath. Ethnologically considered. There you go. Thank you. In this book, he was drawing findings of early European ethnologists, such as James Pritchard. And at the turn of the 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois shaped the concept of race and identity in yet another way by writing about the double consciousness of Africans and, the, and in the diaspora, meaning the descendants of slaves in the United States. So this concept led to the 20th century black nationalist movements. You guys, ethnology is not only an interesting field of study, but it is so hard to say. And I just had to say five variations of it so many times. Thank you for bearing with me through that. 
That was a lot to get through. I'm proud of you. Thank you. It was a lot to get through. So now that we have all this fun backstory, let's talk about King Tut. Yay. Yay. Now buckle up, friends, because we're jumping back, back, back to the 1300s BC. Hey, congratulations on having our earliest episode in the timeline so far. There's always time to go back, man. What's the location? Some hut. Where? 8,000 years ago. Nope. Yeah, 8,000 years ago. Let's just do that. I'm going to do the creation of man. 8,000 years ago? I went to parochial school. We'll get into that later. (laughs) Let's let's argue creationism in the next episode. Okay, I'm tired. Yeah, good. Okay. King Tut. Buckle up, friends. We are jumping back, back, back to the 1300s. Thank you. Our eligible bachelor today hails from ancient Thebes, and boy, oh boy, oh boy, is this boy king a hoot. He's tall. He's remarkably frail. He's got blood infections and a club foot thanks to generations of inbreeding. His wife is his sister, and his dad is his grandpa. Everybody give it up for two tang coming! I worked really hard on that intro. I swipe right. Thank you. <laughs> King Tutankhamun ruled Egypt as pharaoh for 10 years until his death at age 19, around 1324 BC. Right? Face. So much in his teenage years. I can't wait for the CW show on that. So, genetic testing has verified that King Tut was the grandson of the great pharaoh Amenhotep II and the son of Akhenaten who was a uh, controversial figure in the history of the 18th dynasty of Egypt's new kingdom, which spanned from 1550 to 1295 BC. Akhenaten upended centuries-old religious systems um, to favor the worship of a single deity, who was the sun god, Aten, hence his name, Akhenaten. So he moved Egypt's religious capital from Thebes, Thebes to Armana, and this is where my parochial school alarm bells started ringing because the majority of my adolescent knowledge of Egypt and Egyptian culture was through a biblical lens. So for all you Old Testament fans out there, a frame of reference for this time period, the Hebrew people came to Egypt centuries prior to the reign of Tutankhamun uh, and in the midst of a great famine during which, as you can read in the back end of Genesis, this is Joseph Sands' Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, he had prepared the Egyptians for the famine with his dreams slash holy foresight and oversaw the storage of grain, ensured the survival of Egypt through this famine. And since Joseph was a hero figure and was highly regarded, the Hebrew immigrants were welcome at first. A few generations later, the Hebrew population grew uh, at some point along the way. It's not stated explicitly in either Hebrew or Egyptian texts. Uh, an Egyptian campaign was successfully led to enslave the population of Israelites residing in Egypt. So several generations of Israelites lived as slaves. Yes. It was red and yellow and green and brown and blue. Continue. So several generations. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew Lloyd Webber. So several generations of Israelites lived as slaves, and the story of the exodus from Egypt is largely accepted to be tied with the reign of Ramesses II. Ramesses II's reign began around 1295 BC, i.e. the end of the New Kingdom era. 
So in the time of Akhenaten, which was the time of Hebrew slavery, there was this presence of monotheism. And if you so believed, an ingrained history of belief in the presence of one Hebrew God through Joseph and what he did for Egypt. So from a political standpoint, you have a pharaoh that is incredibly controversial and disliked due to their religious belief, which was in line with the religious belief of the enslaved population at the time. Am I the only one who wants to know more about that? No. I was going to say, I'm like, I'm not going to go into it now, but I was like, this is fascinating. Fascinating. Didn't know that there was, because normally when you think of Egypt, you think of there's multiple gods and all like the Horus and, and Osiris and whatnot. And just for this, this one king, it was like, let's try just one god. And everyone said, no. Yeah. What the hell? Immediately flipped back. And it was at the time when Israelites were in Egypt. I found that fascinating. Um, to anyone who didn't, sorry, boot it. Go listen to another podcast and leave us a comment. Um, so after Akhenaten's death, two intervening pharaohs briefly reigned before the nine-year-old prince who was called Tutankhaten. Um, and when he took the throne, um, Tutankhamun reversed Akhenaten's reforms early in his reign, reviving the worship of the god Amun, restoring Thebes as the religious center, and changing the end of his name to reflect royal allegiance to the creator god Amun. As a nine-year-old, he's doing all this. No one told him what to do. I promise. I promise. He totally knew what he was doing. Got it. Um, So he also worked in concert with with two advisors, Horemheb and I, who were both future pharaohs, I immediately succeeded to Zangaman. And they restored Egypt's stature in the region. Yeah. Tut was tall, but physically frail. He had a crippling bone disease in his clubbed left foot. He is the only pharaoh known to have been depicted seated while engaged in physical activities like archery. Um, Traditional inbreeding in the Egyptian royal family also likely contributed to the poor health and his early death. DNA tests published in 2010 revealed that Tutankhamun's parents were brother and sister and that his wife, Akensunamun, not Anaksunamun, oh, yeah, Akensunamun, was also his half-sister. Their only two daughters were stillborn. So because Tutankhamun's remains revealed a hole in the back of his skull, there was a debate for a while that people thought that he was assassinated. But recent tests actually suggest that the hole was made during mummification. There were CAT scans in 1995 that showed the king had an infected, broken left leg. And while DNA from his mummy revealed evidence of multiple malaria infections, all of which may have just like jointly contributed to his early death. Times were hard back then. He had it rough, man. He, he, he had it rough. So then he died. And after he died, King Tut was mummified, according to Egyptian religious tradition, which held that royal bodies should be preserved and provisioned for the afterlife. Embalmers removed his organs, wrapped them in resin-soaked bandages. A 24-pound solid gold portrait mask was placed over his head and shoulders, and he was laid in a series of nested containers three golden coffins, a granite sarcophagus, and four gilded wooden shrines, the largest of which barely fit into the tomb's burial chamber. Here's why. The tomb was super small. Because 
historians look at this and the size of the tomb actually suggests that King Tut's death must have been unexpected and that his burial was rushed by I, the advisor who succeeded him. So the tomb's design suggests that it was actually intended for a private individual and not for royalty. There's some evidence that it was adapted to a royal uh, occupant during the excavation. We'll get into that in a bit. Um, it's also supported by the fact that the only burial wall, only the burial chamber walls were decorated. And in royal tombs, everything is painted and they have all these scenes from the netherworld books. And so the wallpaper is lacking in this place, but they did not send him off into eternity without his accessories. So forgive yes. my, well, forgive my ignorance here, but if the body is mummified, wouldn't they have the time to create the, I mean, aren't all deaths unanticipated in most ways, especially during this time? Like, wouldn't they be able to mummify him or was there some kind of like a Pharaoh has to be buried within this certain time frame? Well, that calls into question something that I think about all the time is you look at these, and when I say all the time, I mean all the time. When you look at the pyramids and how large they are and a bunch of them, I mean, they're multiple tombs. It's not just one guy in one pyramid. Um, but yeah, what was the turnaround rate like on that? Because on the, on the one side, you got lots of hands that are putting it together. You got the Israelite folks that are, that are there for free um, putting it together, but at the same time, no cars. You got donkeys. You got wood. I mean, ancient civilizations had more technology than we give them credit for sometimes. I just as civilians, but I don't know is the answer. There's a lot of implication just in how quickly things turned around. Um, the full religious shift and the fact that like his success, his advisors immediately succeeded him. I'm going to guess that Tut wasn't that involved in that much. And that maybe this was all kind of just a get him out of the way job for this other guy to take over. Yeah. I wasn't there, but like, I feel that way. Oh, weren't you? Weren't you there? If I was alive 65 million years ago? Yeah, I'm older than you. I just use La Mer and my pores are fantastic. Well, you realize that like 1300 BC is after 65 million years ago. I don't realize anything that doesn't please me, Elena. We're going to go over math soon. No, we won't. So the pharaohs who followed... <laughs> um, the pharaohs who... Oh, really quick, I wanted to say. The tomb's antechambers were packed to the ceiling with more than 5,000 artifacts, including furniture, chariots, clothes, weapons, and 130 different walking sticks. Oh, he collects walking sticks like I'm collecting masks. Like well, one, you have to when you need them. Oh, one for well, each you day. Need, and you need masks. Yeah. I was going to shoot down that analogy, but I see how they're perfectly parallel. It's a great analogy. In fact, in Columbus now, they're mandatory. Not that that's making people wear them. Mandatory fun, more like. All right. <laughs> so the pharaohs who followed Tut chose to ignore his reign. He was barely known to the world until 1922 when he was dug up by this British guy, Howard Carter. So now we'll get on to... Howard Carter and the excavation that revamped Egyptomania. <laughs> Howard Carter, I learned more about in the context of researching this than I had ever known before. And I think he's one of my favorite people. Is he a problematic figure? He's really not. 
Okay. I've listened, I've heard podcasts about him before. I, okay. Well then, then maybe there's even more cause I didn't listen to any podcasts about him per se, but in looking at what his uh, continued relationship with the British empire was and the British museum specifically, um, it seems that he was not a person of means. He didn't come from money. He rose up very quickly. It seems that there were a lot of people, um, a little bit jealous, uh, in his early life. And also this is something I wanted to get to later. This was my pride month tag. Um, there was some commentary about, you know, did he potentially have an affair with his patron's daughter, Evelyn Carnahan, who, uh, the character in the mummy was named after Evie. Evie. She makes reference to basically alluding to the fact that she is the daughter of Lord Carnahan. Carnivon, sorry. Um, yeah, anyway, so there was questions about whether or not they had a relationship and she was quoted as saying to someone that the only people she had ever seen him tape up with were the occasional beautiful boy and some of those dancing girls. And I'm like, get it, Howie. Get- <laughs> I mean, you queer life on the Nile. Come on. <laughs> Good for you. Um, so that could have led to some spite um, in people's stories about him, especially in that time. So by the time he discovered Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922, British archaeologist Howard Carter had been excavating Egyptian antiquities for three decades. He was no high-born straw hat seersucker suit scholar. He was the son of an illustrator. And he spent much of his childhood with relatives in the Norfolk market town of Swatham. Swatham. I can't. Brits, I can't. Girl, get your, wait. Get your shit together. Just you wait till the next sentence. You like <laughs> Swatham? Get ready for this. Nearby was the mansion of the Amherst family at Didlington Hall. <laughs> England's dumb. <laughs> Didlington Hall contained a sizable they're, collection. Huh? They're not dumb. I wish I was there now, but we can't leave our country. Contained a sizable collection of Egyptian antiques. And that sparked Carter's interest in that subject. So in 1891, the Egypt Exploration Fund sent Carter, who was himself a skilled illustrator, to assist the Amherst family uh, friend, Percy Newbury, in the excavation and recording of Middle Kingdom tombs at Beni Hassan. So by the age of 17, Carter was sought after for his innovative methods of copying tomb decoration. What, what? Make a name for yourself. Boy King. Um, In 1892, he worked under the tutelage of some French guy who I don't care about for one season at Armana. His name's Flinders Petrie. I actually should appreciate that. Um, which was the former religious capital that was founded by King Tut's father, Akhenaten. Um, And from 1894 to 1899, he recorded the wall reliefs at the temple of Hatshepsut, which is where our two bros uh, stashed their donkey back in the day. So, you know, he hit up all the big places we talked about. Over the course of the next six years, remember this, this kid is still now in his 20s. He was appointed the position of chief inspector of the Egyptian Antiquities Service, and then he got transferred to the Inspectorate of Lower Egypt, where he was praised for his improvements in the protection of and accessibility to existing excavation sites. And he developed the gridlock system for searching for tombs. 
So the Antiquities Service also provided funding for Carter to head his own excavation projects. However, in 1905, this all came to an end and Carter resigned from the Antiquities Service after a formal inquiry into what is known as the Saqqara Affair. This was a confrontation between Egyptian sight guards and a group of French tourists. Things got hostile. Um, Carter sided with the Egyptian personnel. Uh, he claimed that they were being antagonized by the French and that the French were taking and destroying property. Uh, and the Egyptians were defending that. And the French said something about this rascally fella. And uh, they won because uh, white people in the world is terrible. So Saqqara is a famous temple that's 20 miles south of Luxor. It's a multi-tiered step style pyramid. And it was at that time a pretty popular tourist spot. So there's no account I could find actually that really even described what the incident was if people got injured. Um, just that it was all a little suspect in how it was being reported. There's a few theories floating around about how the whole scenario was set up by other more established British and French leaders of the field who were salty about how quickly Carter had risen through the ranks. So that's cute. And he resigned, <laughs> he resigned all of his positions and was an outcast for three years until Lord Carnarvon scoops him up because he was, he was really good at what he did and he was highly recommended, but out of work. So Lord Carnarvon comes by um, and employs him to supervise excavations of several noblemen's tombs that Carnarvon had laid claim to because that's how this all worked. You get the money, you buy the land to dig, and we sort out the details of what you find later. So the British Museum in London, the Louvre, the Metropolitan Museum, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, they all relied on government funding or wealthy patrons to buy plots of land. And this was against um, independently wealthy folks who would buy land to hopefully, hopefully find valuables as well. Or they were even just doing it for fun because there was nothing else to do. And on top of this, you have the local population who, as you recall, have been competing with the foreign tourists uh, and dug around their home sites, quote, illegally, because they hadn't purchased the land. So by 1917, when Carnivon's excavation in the Valley of the Kings was financed, authorized, and ready to go, it was pretty much known that for the large part, the Valley of the Kings had been picked clean. And by 1922, Carnivon started to get antsy about recouping anything on his investment on the land. And he told Carter that he had one more season of funding to make a significant find in the Valley of the Kings. Ooh, that's a great plot setup, Right? You got, it's gotta be this year, Howie. It's gotta put the dancing girls down. No, I don't care if that boy's beautiful. You gotta focus, you got one more season. So Carter returned to the Valley of the Kings and he investigated a line of huts that he had abandoned a few seasons earlier. You know, it's always in the first place you look. Um, so in early November, 1922, the cruise water boy trips on a stone that turned out to be the top of a flight of steps cut into the bedrock. Ouch. Carter had the steps partially dug out to reveal the top of a mud plastered doorway stamped with indistinct cartouches, which are oval seals with hieroglyphic writing, but why wouldn't you say cartouches when you have the opportunity to? So Carter ordered the staircase to be refilled, sent a telegram to Carnivon and was like, uh, I think we found something, unboxing party. And he comes two weeks later on the 23rd of November. On the 26th, Carter made a quote, 
tiny breach in the top left-hand corner of the doorway with a tiny little hammer he got for his 17th birthday from an aunt. Uh, and Lord Carnivon, his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, and others in attendance, he was able to peer in by the light of a candle and see that many of the gold and ebony treasures were still in place. He did not yet know whether this was a tomb or just an old cache, a little storage spot. Um, but he did see the sealed doorway between two sentinel statues at the end. And Cardivon asked, can you see anything? And famously, the first words Carter said was, yes, wonderful things. Aww. Things, wonderful things. Oliver. Um, so, <laughs> realizing the scope, the size and scope of the task that lied ahead, they go over to the Metropolitan Museum's excavation team and said, hey, you know, we found something. And they're like, take our best guys. We, yes, we want to, we want a stake in this. Take some people. Yes. The size and scope of the task that lied ahead. If you're correcting my English earlier, I'm correcting your English here. Stop living in the past, Elena. We got to focus on what's happening. Uh, okay, fine. So they uh, put what part of the staff that the Met Museum loaned uh, was a photographer named Harry Burton, who can be credited with the majority of the photos that exist of the dig site and the crew. And there's quite a few. Uh, some of them still are under copyright, which is nuts to me. You have to pay. I wanted to send you some of them, but they were all water stamped and uh, I didn't want to buy them. So I didn't. So y'all get some grainy pictures. Deal with it. Call it a filter. It's going to be on Instagram. Check out our Instagram. So, okay. Sorry, I lost my thought. It took Carter and his team a decade to catalog and empty the tomb. And remember, this was small. It was a small tomb but it was considered the best preserved and most intact pharaonic tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings. That's why this is huge. So it was very eagerly covered by the world press, but most of whom sent their representatives and they had to stay in the hotel because Carter refused to allow extra feet on the ground. He's like, you're gonna ruin it. No, get out of here. You remember what happened with the French? I hate y'all, get out of here. Um, but he did allow H.B. Morton from the Times on the scene and it was H.B. Morton's description that sparked this whole international popularity for Carter and a second wave of Egyptomania in the United States. Now I know that you all love to follow us because we're a history and like location real estate architecture podcast so let's get you those property deets. How does that sound Elena? Because the thumbs up reads real well over a podcast babe. I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> As we mentioned, and as that poor water boy tripped and told us, there was a staircase uh, at the base. Staircase leads 16 steps down from a small level platform to the first doorway, which was sealed and plastered, although it had been penetrated by grave robbers at least twice in antiquity. One time they're thinking like right after Tut was buried. Oh, wow. So this, this goes back. Everybody likes free. Anyway, the entrance corridor. So beyond that first doorway, a descending corridor leads to a second sealed door and into the room that Carter described as the antechamber. This was originally used to hold material left over from the funeral and material associated with embalming the king. So like those jars that Imhotep had with his stuff. Canopic jars. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so the antechamber, a.k.a. the cube smart. The 
undecorated antechamber was found in a state of, quote, organized chaos. This was partially due to the ransacking during early robberies and partly due to the fact that it was just stuffed with stuff. It came, I'm watching Hoarders right now. And it's, I think this is why I'm watching Hoarders is because Tut's tomb was like a hoard. Um, this first room was packed with about 700 objects. Uh, the most remarkable item in this room were the stacked components of four chariots, one of which was possibly used for hunting, one for war, and the other two for parades. You got your weekend parade chariot and, you, and your weekday parade chariot. I want a parade chariot. Love a parade. Um, a large chest was found to contain military items, walking sticks. You know he loves his walking sticks. Uh, his underwear and a copper alloy trumpet, one of two found in the tomb, and the oldest known functioning brass instruments in the world. Historic. I'm really happy we could work that in. Yeah. Next room, treasury. The treasury was the burial chamber's only side room that was accessible by an unblocked doorway. This contained over 5,000 cataloged objects. Most of them were funerary and ritual in nature. The two largest objects in this room were the king's elaborate canopic chest. Oh, so he wasn't in the antechamber. Tough titty, man. But good on you for knowing canopic. Anyway. Thank you. You're welcome. And a large statue of Anubis. Other items included numerous shrines containing gilded statuettes of the king and deities and model boats and two more chariots for some reason. So 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 many chariots. So many chariots. But... And I find this kind of sweet. This room held the mummies of two fetuses that DNA testing has shown to have been the stillborn offspring of the king. So, yeah, he was buried with his um, uh, stillborn daughters. I I don't know why I find that kind of sweet, but I do that respect um, for them and and keeping them within the family. Did he have a wife that was of record or? Yeah, his half-sister. His half-sister was what? Mom-wife. Yes. Got it. Thank you. Listen, if Edgar Allan Poe can do it, the annex. (laughs) The annex uh, was originally used to store oils, ointments, scents, food and wine, and the last room to be cleared uh, from October 1927 to the spring of 1928. So it was small in size, but it contained approximately 280 groups of objects, totaling more than 2,000 individual pieces. And among them were 26 empty wine jugs. Um, it could just evaporate over time, but makes you think, doesn't it? Where'd DeWine go? Oh, he's the governor of Ohio. Ouch! Oh. I rolled my eyes so hard I snapped an optic nerve. Oh, bring that it back. Was good. Thank you. That was good for you, though. Thank you. And then the big part, of course, was the burial chamber. So this was, as I said before, the only decorated chamber in the tomb. It had scenes from the opening of the mouth ceremony, uh, which was a thing, (laughs) showing I, Tutankhamun's successor, acting as the king's son, despite being older than he is. It's the whole passing of the the pharaonic spirit. Um, And Tutankhamun's with the goddess Nut on the north wall. And she turned me into a newt. And 12 hours of Amudat, Amduat on the West Wall. I'm so sorry. I did so much research. And I did not look up specifically what these um, depicted. 
except for this one uh, on another wall was the spell one of the Book of the Dead on the east wall, which was a real thing. Uh, representations of the kings and various deities, yada, yada, yada. They had decor. So some of the other decor choices and specifically how they portray any relevance to Tut himself are questionable. There's certain cartouches where a king's name should appear um, that have been altered as if to reuse the property of a previous pharaoh. Um, however, they, they do say that some instances of this could just be updating artifacts to reflect the shift from Tutankhaten, his previous name, to Tutankhamun. But there were other, other indifferences where face shapes matched other mummies that they found elsewhere in different digs and weren't in line with the person in there. It's like, what is this hobcobble put together tomb that you have? That is the best example we had of an intact representation of ancient Egyptian burial schemes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy that it is the best representation, but it was seemed to be so hastily and quickly put together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hm. But you know what we should talk about now? The curse. The curse. The curse. So the curse of the pharaohs, or the mummy's curse, is a curse, I'll say curse one more time, curse, alleged to be cast upon anyone who disturbs the mummy of an ancient Egyptian, especially a pharaoh. This curse, which does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists, is claimed to cause bad luck, illness, or death. Is there a difference between thieves and archaeologists, though? A degree in the field oh i and get i get that but i mean at this point what are they doing they're taking treasures of egypt and moving them out of the country well, no 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 no. who was their papa what papa said that i could be here for the summer and i'm having a great time in my linen pants look a hippo oh egypt is fun except for the locals okay did I answer your question? No, continue though. There is no difference between the archaeologists and the thieves at this point because Thank they're you. taking things out of Egypt. Got it. Which is part of why I want to... <sighs> when we're talking about how thoroughly Howard Carter was cataloging things, it's also important to note that everything that he found, he exclusively gave to the Egyptian Museum at Cairo. And he never got any honors from England. He, it's one of the biggest finds um, in archaeology, period. And as much as he was honored by Egypt and he was internationally around and went on talking tours, he never got knighted, he never got a medal, he never got a plaque, nothing. Because they were buttered, because he left it all in Egypt. Hmm. Right? So this yeah. is part of, when you asked earlier, it's like, is Howard Carter going to be crunchy? Um, I'm sure nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Um, but he's got to work it. And he worked it for the local population and he kept everything Egyptian in Egypt. So that Great. is an archaeologist. Howard Carter was an archaeologist. All right. So there are occasional instances of genuine ancient curses appearing inside or on the facade of a tomb. But these appear to be directed towards the Ka priests to protect the tomb carefully and preserve its ritual purity rather than as a warning for potential robbers. So there was a tradition of superstition already um, and rumors of a quote Pharaoh's curse multiplied after Howard Carter's discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun because the newspapers needed something to talk about. 
So the belief that the curse was brought to many people's attention due to the deaths of a few members of Howard Carter's team and other prominent visitors to the tomb shortly thereafter. Here are those stories. One, Egyptologist James Henry Berested, love that name, worked on the site soon after the first opening of the tomb. He reported how Carter sent a messenger on an errand to his house. On approaching his home, the messenger thought he heard a faint, almost human cry. Upon reaching the entrance, he saw the birdcage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in its mouth, and this fueled local rumors of a curse. This was interpreted as Carter's house being broken into by the royal cobra, the same as that worn on the king's head to strike enemies on the very day the king's tomb was being broken into. An account of the incident was reported by the New York Times on the 22nd of December, 1922. Slow news day, I guess. This just in. Snake eats bird in the desert. Wow. Groundbreaking. Instance number two. I also love that they're like, crew members died. His canary died. Um, people got sick too. Like Cord Lord Carnarvon. You don't know what that canary contributed to the excavation. I'm sorry. Um, you're right. I'm don't sorry. canary shame. Shout out to my avian friends. So, the <laughs> we're dropping all kinds of knowledge this episode. Anyway, the first of the actual mysterious deaths, sorry, canary, was that of Lord Carnarvon himself. He had been bitten by a mosquito and later slashed the bite accidentally while shaving. It became infected and that resulted in blood poisoning. Two weeks before Carnarvon died, Marie Corelli, who was a writer, uh, wrote an imaginative letter that was published in the New York World Magazine in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that, quote, dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. A media frenzy followed with reports that a curse had been found in the king's tomb, though this was untrue. But fun side note, Benito Mussolini was crazy superstitious. He had once accepted an Egyptian mummy as a gift. And when this magazine article was published, he freaked out and ordered his staff to have the mummy removed immediately. I love that that was, that yeah, was like a night for him. Well, and he was in our previous episode too. History um, 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 is connected. Okay. Gift, gifter of giant marble fireplaces. Absolutely. And receiver of mummies. Receiver of mummies. What, what kind of presents are we giving each other? Other than like Venmo. Let me send you an emoji with, with some cash. Yes. I don't I'm gonna, know. I don't know. I'm going to get you a big rock. A big important rock. Anyway. I already got you a rock. I do. It's by my bedside and it's not helping with my insomnia. So suck on that. Same. <laughs> The world's on fire. Okay, so Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Lord Carnarvon's death had been caused by, quote, elementals, love that he said that, um, created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb. And this further fueled the media interest. Kind of makes sense. Is it like a little booby trap type thing? Pax because, and Sultan? Because the fiction writer suggested it. Got it. He's really smart, though, and he's super good at deducing things. <laughs> and this is about mummies, guys. 
that's the point. All of this had been so fetishized and like romanticized. It, it, people were incapable almost of viewing anything that occurred there with a lens of reality. It was just so mystical and better. I don't know. God, we're all just looking for something to believe in, aren't we? Yes. However, a study of documents and scholarly, scholarly sources make it unlikely that Carnivon's death had anything to do with Tut's tomb. The cause of Carnivon's death was reported as pneumonia, only one of various complications arising from the progressively invasive infection that eventually resulted in multi-organ failure. And the Earl had been, quote, prone to frequent and severe lung infections. So he died of a thing he'd been sick with for a while. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Canaries in the desert being eaten by snakes. Dying of your illness. Sorry. In 1925, this is point number three, anthropologist Henry Field, accompanied by Breasted, my favorite name on this dig site, visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. And he also reported how a paperweight given to Carter's friend, Sir Bruce Ingram, was composed of a mummified hand with its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet marked, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. That's just bad luck right there. Also, if you can ever get me a paperweight, please let it be a hand. Just a hand with a bracelet on it. I'll work on it. Like with a little finger pointed out that points at whatever I'm supposed to look at. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's useful. It's, it's, it's functional. In addition, just being weighty. So finally, number four, Howard Carter reported in his diary a, quote, strange account on May in May of 1926. He saw jackals of the same type as Anubis the guardian of the dead, for the first time in over 35 years of working in the desert. He saw dogs one day in their environment. It's funny the way that you present these because the podcast that I listened to that was about Howard Carter and and the finding of King Tut's tomb was very much of the like, we're going to try to get you to believe in this. So the way that they presented the information was very like, and then his house burned down followed by a flood when it was rebuilt like it was just it's very targeted like we're trying to make you think this is real the way that you very nonchalantly delivered those i'm like this shit ain't real it's not real it's not it's not real because i hate to break it to you despite popular misconceptions no curse was found inscribed in anywhere in tut's tomb um the evidence for curses relating to, to king tutankhamen is considered to be so meager that one scholar uh, named Donald B. Redford viewed it as, quote, unadulterated claptrap. I love that so much. Wait, say it again, though. Unadulterated claptrap. Say the word one more time. Claptrap. Unadulterated. Hi, what's wrong with my unadulterated? Unadulterated. You weren't saying unadulterated. Yeah, I was. What did you think I was saying? You were saying un unadulterated. I swear to God. If you interrupt my knowledge fest. I'm more. sorry. Continue. 
I just, I don't know if what you're saying is true, so I don't want to argue it anymore, but listeners, please let us know. And if you go back while you're editing and find that, do not remove it. I'm not. All right. I want your mistakes to stay. And that's it. Okay. A bird got eaten by a snake, pneumonia, house fire, puppies. That's, that's all the evidence that we have supporting the curse. That's why I gave you so much backstory on Egypt, because it's so much more important that we understand why we're so fixated on it than this bullshit, this smoke and mirrors that we're told we should care about, you know, just mummies and and this made up fantasy world of what ancient Egypt was. It's so much more important that we actually pay attention to tracing our history as the human race, honoring those evolutions that we've made and taking stock for who we've heard along the way. That was my takeaway from King Tut. And the final thing on the curse, the final thing on the curse. Skeptics have pointed out that many others who visited the tomb or helped uncover it lived long and healthy lives. A study showed that of the 58 people who were present in the tomb and the sarco- when the tomb and the sarcophagus were open, only eight died within the next dozen years. All the others were still alive, including Howard Carter, who died of lymphoma in 1939 at the age of 64. Lady Evelyn Herbert, um, she finally passed. She lived another 57 years and died in 1980. And the last surviving member, another, the longest, second longest surviving member, um, an American archaeologist, J.O. Kinnaman, died in 1961, a full 39 years after the event. That's it. But if you want to know where King Tut is now, artifacts from the tomb have toured the world in several blockbuster museum shows, including the worldwide 1972 through 79 Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibitions. Um, Eight million visitors in seven U.S. cities viewed the exhibition of the Golden Burial Mask and 50 other precious items from the tomb. Today, the most fragile artifacts, including the burial mask, no longer live in Egypt. No longer leave Egypt. I'm so sorry. I was ready to be disappointed. No, they are at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Um, Tutankhamun's mummy remains on display within the tomb in the Valley of the Kings in the KV-62 chamber. I want to go. And also respect the dead. That is where he was put. Leave him there. Um, His layered coffins replaced with climate-controlled glass boxes to preserve him forever. Um, His golden mask is on display at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, but the Tutankhamun collection will eventually move to the Grand Egyptian Museum, or GEM, slated to open in 2020 at the time that that was released, which was was 2018. We'll see if that actually opens this year. That's a tut. Do you think that the year 2020 is a curse for opening King Tut's tomb? Well, I have seen a lot of puppies recently. Jackal? Jackal. It's a jackal. 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 It's a jackal. So uh, as part of my job is to show the theaters in Columbus. And all I've, you know, I, I know that the Lincoln Theater, um, which is, uh, so the Lincoln Theater was originally built in 1928. Uh, it's a landmark uh theater in african-american and jazz history its interior is entirely um it's it's decorated entirely in the egyptian style uh it's based on the temple at karnak i think but 
Uh, it opened on Thanksgiving Day in 1928. And as I understand it, it opened on Thanksgiving Day in 1928 because Thanksgiving Day is when King Tut's tomb was discovered in 1922. The anniversary could be, of it, yeah. could be incorrect, but I feel like that's correct. So yeah, so now I have more information for when I... Um, for when I tour the theater for people. Yeah. Also let them know I performed on that stage because I know that they're dying. Oh. Was that, I was in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream in college and we went on tour and then we did the Lincoln's and we were at the Lincoln stage. And it's it's a cute, it's a cute theater. It really is a nice theater. It's worth seeing a show there just to be in that space. If you're what, in Columbus. What year were you? What year that would have been 2000, uh, go early spring 2011. I booked it then. You're welcome. I didn't even know you then. I know. I started working there in 2009, which is when it re- the theater reopened. Did you see me? I saw you. I seen to you. Oh, I wasn't very good. In that show. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the best to Tanya. I wasn't. I'm not. That's not. I'm more of a bottom. <laughs> that's what she said. Okay, moving along, because this is an epically long episode. All right, Elena, you made it through the whole episode, and now that you know more about Egypt, let's see how much you know about the bullshit representation of Egypt in American cinema. Are you ready for as yet unwittily titled Egypt Quiz? Yes. I just called it Egypt Quiz. I'm so sorry. Everybody, feel free to shout along at home, and if I hear you, you get a Tootsie Roll. So, Elena. A bird or a stork is a character often seen in hieroglyphics, most commonly used to represent, quote, spirit or the concept of a soul. But gosh, is the spoken word hard to remember. Evie and Jonathan Carnahan struggled to recall what word in the mummy and the mummy too. It's this, it's... A mythicent. Uh, uh, so everyone knows she's doing the Arsenio Hall whoop, whoop, whoop. No, I'm doing the bird thing. That's in the movie. A metaphys! A metaphys! You're right! It's a metaphys! I did it! <laughs> I went the quiz! I'm actually really impressed Thank that you. you got that. Um, I'm so happy. I forget everything. I'm so excited right now. That was on the cover of the book of Amun-Ra. So what does Amun-Ra mean in English? Uh, That's the question, everybody. What does Amun-Ra mean in English? Sun god. No. Moon god. No. I don't know. Not even within the context of the movie? Book of the Dead? Book of the Living. It is the Book of the Living or the Golden Book. Fun fact, though, the Book of the Dead can be purchased on Amazon for roughly $32. Um, It was taken down on a found papyrus that is a very famous uh, piece of paper from from our collective history as as a human race. Um, And yeah, it's well documented. You can read different incantations from the Book of the Dead. Cool. The more you know. I would suggest not doing that in this year, just in case curses are real. Please don't read. Please don't do it. Thank you. I have this book called the Necronomicon, but I'm having trouble reading it. Can you help? Anyway, no. uh, <laughs> 
All right, so I'm gonna throw some names at you and I, I need you to do some association. You ready? You ready? Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy. Who encountered a mummy? Oh, Laurel and Hardy. You idiot. What? No. They didn't? That the sounds film. like that sounds like some bullshit that would okay, go ahead. All right. Well, here's why it's actually a trick question. Ugh. Because there is the actual film from the 1930s, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. Abbott and Costello met the mummy. There is a 1999 film called The All New Adventures of Laurel and Hardy in For Love or Mummy. I absolutely hate that. And that cast is Bronson Pinchot, <gasps> Dyard Sartanis, yeah, as Stan and Ollie. And there's an Egyptologist in there, played yeah, Professor Henry Covington, played by F. Murray Abraham. This came out the same year that Jonathan Hyde played the Egyptologist in The Mummy, and I constantly confuse F. Murray Abraham and Jonathan Hyde. But That's they valid. Both, they, right? They both played Egyptologists in the same year in Mummy movies. Okay, so Abbott and Costello met a mummy. Laurel mm -hmm. and Hardy was the more recent version. The concept of Laurel and Hardy. Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy did not meet a mummy. Drat. Bronson Pinchot met a mummy. Belky. All right. Belky's from Mepos. You know what? I think we did. You know what? There was a lot to learn in this episode, guys. <laughs> This was this was one of the probably of the up there with the most historyish history. It's chonky with history. This and this and Greenwood. Sure. Yeah, were the two, I think so far the two chonkiest for history, because I mean, let this be a lesson to you. There's always so much more to learn, guys. There's so much I didn't even go into. There's so much current conflict in Egypt right now with the Kanawi people um, being removed from their lands because people don't trust they. It's like they think they're toddlers and don't trust them to be there. And they're trying to actively re relocate these villages away from their natural sites because they want to, I don't, I don't, I'm so tired of it. Yeah. Of all of it. Yeah. <sighs> but please keep reading it. And I hope this was helpful and don't believe in curses guys. I'll try not to. I know it's a tough year to say that. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> And I Listen. also, that rhetoric of like, this year is the worst year ever. It's funny. And I joke about it. It's truly not. And uh, speaking for myself, and also I speak for you too, I believe uh, we are incredibly lucky people in this year. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to make, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not grateful for my, what I have. And change has to come out of difficult times. So we're getting there, but I do have that insomnia and I'm going to need you all to stop lighting off those fireworks because it happens when I'm going to bed and I can't deal with it anymore. It's real bad. These past, these past few nights, I have been up to like, just up trying to find things to occupy my brain with at like 3 a.m. You should text schedule. me because I'm generally awake. That's, I, I do sometimes. <laughs> I shouldn't because <laughs> it's bad for both of us. Hopefully today was very productive and busy and I am very sweaty. And when you get in good workouts, you sleep better. That's a fact, everybody. So, so I'm going to shower and go to bed. Work out hard. Um, get some sleep. Stay motivated. Keep fighting. Dismantle 
the patriarchy and white supremacism go wait rate and review us on itunes please um you don't even have to write a review just click the five stars and submit it um you can email us at if these walls pod at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram at if these walls pod and i think that's it anything else audrey i'm proud of me for getting through this day and i'm proud of you for doing it with me that's what she said come on now get out of here oh bye everyone just don't let the door hit you on the way out there you go slugger Point out, 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 point out,